Of course, that doesn't mean I would avoid pomalidomide with anti-CD38. For sure, I would not. But I would definitely be inclined to add something else to it in that situation. Yeah, sure. I, I completely agree. And indeed, while the patients with a high risk cytogenetic abnormalities remains as a challenging population, even with the incorporation of the novel BCMA-targeted therapy. Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Carrier Farm Therapeutics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organization or the rest of the Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect group. For experts' disclosures on conflict of interest, please go to hemato-oncology on call2ed.com. Hello, and welcome to this podcast on multiple myeloma. My name is Alex Lesokin. I'm a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with a specific focus on multiple myeloma. And here I'm joined by Marivy Mateos. Hello, Alex, and I am Marivy Mateos, director of the myeloma unit at the University Hospital of Salamanca in Spain. And it's a great pleasure to be with you here in this podcast. And the audience in the two previous episodes heard our colleagues Joshua Ritter and Kartik Ramasamy discuss how they choose the best treatment regime for patients with multiple myeloma. And in this episode, Alex and I will discuss how we go about these treatment decisions in patients with multiple myeloma, but we will focus on a specific subgroup of patients with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. So let's start with exploring some of the treatment options that we have for these patients. Let's start with you, Alex. In the US, you probably have access to a different range of treatments than I do here in Europe. Thanks, Mervi. Yeah, I'll start with just defining the high-risk cytogenetic patients so that we all are talking about the same thing here. And, uh, you know, for sure, the IMWG criteria help us with uh, translocation 414, 1416, deletion 17P. I would include 1420 there, as well as gain of chromosome 1Q. Patients with extramedullary disease, revised ISS stage 3 as folks with high-risk disease at presentation. So when I see those patients for transplant-eligible patients, I tend to think about uh, quad therapies with a DARA in KRD if I'm able to access that. And if not, then DARA RVD. I take these patients to transplant and then consider doublet uh, maintenance afterward with carfilzomib uh, lenalidomide maintenance. And uh, for transplant ineligible patients, I think about a triplet with a DARA-based combination. In the relapse setting, of course, I think about what the patient previously received and thinking to treat with a triplet combination. For example, if someone is progressing off of lenalidomide to a pomalidomide combination or something of that sort. What does it look like in Europe? I think that, uh, Alex, in Europe, as in the U.S., we don't have specific combinations for patients with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. And what I usually try to do in my clinic is to offer to my patients with high-risk the best combinations as possible, trying them to achieve a minimal residual disease negative, sustain it over time, because we've seen in several clinical trials how the achievement of MRD negative is able to overcome the prognosis of the presence of these high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. 
And in the clinical practice, uh, well, carfilzomib is not available in the first line of therapy for patients with a high risk. So if the patient is transplanted, we use uh, VRD followed by tandem autologous stem cell transplantation and maintenance with a, a doubled combination, basically based on lenalidomide plus bortezomib. Daratumumab is being incorporated into our treatment landscape, but in combination with VTD. And we know that it, this quadruplet combination improves the outcome of patients with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. And in the elderly population, my first choice would be Daralindex. If this combination is not available, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, maybe throughout the VRD light scheme, for the transplanting eligible population. And at the relapse and refractory setting, I usually the same concept and definitely to try to see to which the patient was previously exposed, to see to which the patient was refractory in order to select corfilzomib, pomalidomide, or anti-CD30H monoclonal antibodies if the patient was naive. Considering, of course, the BCMA targeted therapy that it is coming, and I can't forget the clinical trials if they are available. For sure. This all sounds very reasonable, and of course, things that we would use, especially in situations where, at least in the initial setting, carfilzomib is not available to us. So I guess then the question here, particularly in the relapse, is how do you decide when to go for a treatment option in a patient with high-risk cytogenetics? Are there specific things or specific factors that you focus on when you're thinking about treatment choices? Yeah, sure. I think that this is uh, the critical question because uh, we have always uh, to consider some uh, patient and disease-based factors in order to make it the right choice. And I would say that regardless of the presence of high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, we have to consider the chronological age, frailty, comorbidities, organ function, the renal, the liver, the heart function, but also maybe the social support, the, the lifestyle. And we have to incorporate the presence of high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities as the key disease-related factor. Today, with the combinations we have so far available, I would say that at the first relapse, at least here in Europe, a majority of the patients are refractory to lenalidomide. And if they present with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, we can assume that the majority of the patients will relapse under lenalidomide treatment before than expected. This means that these patients, if they are naive for anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, this would be my first choice in combination with either carfilzomib and dexamethasone or pomalidomide and dexamethasone, depending on comorbidities, prior medical history, frailty, and always assuming that all these combinations are effective in patients with high risk, but they do not specifically overcome the poor prognosis. Sometimes I don't know what is your experience in selecting some specific drugs for some specific cytogenetic abnormalities. And recently it was reported the efficacy of isatuximab and ICD-38 monoclonal antibody in combination with carfilzomib and pomalidomide in patients with abnormalities of the chromosome 1. And maybe this would be a choice. Another potential combination in early relapses would be the use of selinexor 
in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone in patients with the deletion 17P. But uh, definitely, I think that it is difficult because, uh, well, the high-risk population is usually underrepresented in the overall clinical trial. So it is difficult from my point of view to select some specific combinations for some specific cytogenetic abnormalities. I don't know what is your experience, Anna, if you have some specific combinations for patients with specific cytogenetic abnormalities. I always find this to be, as you were pointing out, one of the most challenging areas for us in managing our patients. I agree with you completely that the addition of the anti-CD38s can help, you know, carfilzomib can help. Selenexer data with the, the Boston study is intriguing for, for example, 17P. The activity level with isotuximab, carfilzomib dex in chromosome 1Q is encouraging. However, as you point out, these help, but it's not clear that they are inherently altering the underlying biology of the disease. So I think the approach is generally, what were you on most recently? Uh, how was the response kinetic? And let's use a different mechanism of action and combine it with something you have not seen before. So if someone is progressing on lenalidomide-based maintenance with a proteasome inhibitor, historically the data supported Velcade and lenalidomide. So some of the patients from, you know, where I've had treatment from a couple of years back may be on that. Then I would uh, switch over to a carfilzomib anti-CD38 combination. However, if someone is in the current space progressing on carfilzomib and lenalidomide, then an anti-CD38 with pomalidomide might be the choice that I would make. And I might even add cyclophosphamide to that simply because the data, particularly, for example, with the Apollo trial, you know, the high-risk cytogenetics there, the outcomes were somewhat discouraging, I would say, compared to the standard risk subgroup in that disease. Now, of course, that doesn't mean I would avoid pomalidomide with anti-CD38. For sure, I would not, but I would definitely be inclined to add something else to it in that situation. Yeah, sure. I, I completely agree. And indeed, well, the patients with a high risk cytogenetic abnormalities remains as a challenging population, even with the incorporation of the novel BCMA-targeted therapy. And the data we have coming from BCMA CARTIS in this population are exciting. But when we look into the outcomes, we have the opportunity to see how the outcome is a bit inferior in comparison with the standard risk. Just a brief question, Alex. Well, any special recommendation for patients with extramedullary disease? Because this is also a population with a high-risk feature in spite of the absence of high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. I tend to view these patients as a unique subgroup of the disease, one where there's generally a higher proliferative index specifically in those lesions. And I tend to think more towards alkylator-based combinations in that stage. But I would definitely humbly approach these uh, cases. These are very, very challenging uh, disease subsets uh, where, you know, I think early incorporation of clinical trial approaches would be the way to go. Uh, at our center, and I wouldn't say that this is necessarily a mainstream 
uh, view. But at our center, we would consider even for a younger patient population with an available donor match, we would consider allogeneic uh, stem cell transplantation in this subgroup because of the challenging nature of this disease. Of course, I completely agree. And although you went back to the allogenic stem cell transplantation, I think that if we look at a bit into the future, Alex, what are the unmet needs do you see in this area and how they can be addressed? Well, I think the extramedullary disease is definitely an area of unmet need. I think the patients with more than one cytogenetic abnormality or what we now classify as the ultra high risk cytogenetic subgroup, these are patients that frequently will progress even during induction therapy or very early post-transplant. These are areas of significant unmet need where I would say that our treatment paradigms need to be perhaps even rethought. So, and as with all myeloma patients, including standard risk, you know, the patients that become refractory to both proteasome inhibitors, both IMIDs and uh, anti-CD38, I mean, those patients are for sure an unmet need across the spectrum of myeloma, but it just happens faster uh, in patients with high risk. That doesn't mean it's less or more of an unmet need in either setting, but it for sure is an unmet need across the board and just more pressing for patients with high-risk disease. Yeah, from my point of view, if I can briefly add just a comment, I think that we need trials specifically conducted for patients with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities with specific objectives, maybe a more intensive approach of therapy trying to majority of the patients to reach minimal residual disease negative. And I think that if we conduct specific clinical trials for these patients, this is going to be the only way in which we can answer to the previous question, well, to select the appropriate therapy for this specific subgroup of patients. I wonder if I could just ask, what do you think about the idea here of designing trials specifically looking at MRD negativity as an endpoint, particularly in the patients with high-risk cytogenetics, with a treatment paradigms not prescribed, but rather adjusted, depending on depth of response and MRD status. And I, I wonder whether, you know, this would be a way to go forward. Yeah, definitely. And we've been involved in the design of a new clinical trial for patients with high risk in which we are going to do exactly what we say. We are going to adapt the therapy, different mechanisms of actions based on the achievement of minimal residual disease negative, because the idea is to expose the plasma cells to different agents because our objective is majority of the patients, them to reach MRP negative. This is, I think, for sure the way forward. And I would suggest that the, this kind of approach is something that we will learn on from our experiences with high-risk cytogenetic patients and then likely apply them across the board to patients with standard risk in the future. So if I were to, you know, sort of think about these unmet needs, what do you think about all of the bispecific therapies? You know, for sure, these are investigational now, but at least in the, you know, in the U.S., some are likely to become available by the end of this year and early 2023. How would you envision using those once they become available to you more broadly in Europe outside of clinical trials? Yeah, definitely. The bi-specific monoclonal antibodies, I think that uh, are great drugs. But uh, right now, from my point of view, 
the landscape is a bit crowded because we have a long list of bi-specific monoclonal antibodies targeting either BCMA or GPRC5D or FCRH5. And the data we have are exciting, but honestly, we don't have solid data based on progression for survival or overall survival. So I think that we need this data, especially in order to put them in the context of the third therapy, the BCMA CAR-Ts or even other CAR-Ts, because definitely the availability is going to be broader than for CAR-Ts, but we need to know what is the median progression for survival, what is the overall survival. But definitely a main advantage for the bi-specific monoclonal antibodies is of the shelf drugs, so higher availability and a greater potential to be combined with other bi-specific monoclonal antibodies, with anti-CD30H monoclonal antibodies, or even with it. So if we can expect an inferior efficacy or a bit inferior efficacy in comparison with CAR-T, maybe this can be compensated because of the possibility of being combined. Absolutely. I would agree completely. Do you see the role of CAR-T in high-risk disease as a still a one-and-done type approach? Or do you also think that there we will need to add additional agents to maintain? Well, uh, maybe, and this is what I previously said, uh, well, we have data from IDCell and Filtafel in patients with a high risk, and uh, the data are exciting, and uh, they are good data, but uh, the progression for survival is a bit inferior in comparison with the standard risk. And indeed, we have uh, experience with the uh, patients included in some clinical trials, some patients with uh, high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, usually the durability of the response is shorter than expected. So maybe this is exactly what you say. We need to incorporate maintenance approaches after CAR-T, especially in order to maintain the response achieved. For sure, for sure. Thank you for this discussion. I think that it has been a great discussion with you and sharing our view from the U.S. and the European perspective. I don't know, Alex, if you wanted to summarize your takeaways. Sure. So, I mean, I think as we've discussed, the key takeaways really are that we need additional clinical trials designed specifically for a high-risk multiple myeloma subgroups so that we can better understand what the specific agents are for specific cytogenetic abnormalities so that we are able to personalize our treatment approaches. And I think the other main takeaway I have is that the advent of sort of immune therapies with CAR-T and bispecific therapies is very exciting and hopefully will allow us to continue to help these patients. Thank you. I would like also to finalize saying that the audience has to try to utilize the best combinations as possible for patients with high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, trying these patients to reach the deepest response as possible. And thank you very much for this nice discussion, Alex. And before we close, I invite to all of you to listen to the other episodes of this podcast series on multiple myeloma, to learn more about treatment selections in the newly diagnosed and relapsing and refractory settings. The full series is available on core2ed.com and on your preferred podcast platform. 
This Lymphoma and Myeloma Connect podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education. For more information, please visit courtoed.com and select Hemato Oncology.